Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Katz, and welcome to Tuesday's edition of WeRSC.com's Inside the Trojan Huddle, where we tell it like it is. Friends, Inside the Trojan Huddle is a game-like panel discussion that is posted Tuesdays in the off-season and twice during the regular season. The huddle features WeRSC columnists, staff writers, and historians. We first start off with the pregame show, where we introduce our panel members for this edition of Inside the Trojan Huddle, and then give you the latest USC Trojans football news. Let's first meet Tuesday's panelist, a WeRSC columnist who writes WeRSC.com's Monday Morass, Yay or Nay, and Sunday Takeaways. In addition to regular season football and basketball reports, he also hosts his own podcast show entitled Locked On USC, Mark Culkin. The editor-in-chief of WeRSC.com, a columnist, national recruiting guru, and a graduate of USC, Eric McKenney. And a former William Jewell College defensive back and WeRSC columnist who writes the popular WeRSC.com column, Musings with Arledge, and his own weekly WeRSC.com video show, Musings with Arledge, solo edition. He also is a graduate of the USC Law School, Chris Arledge. And as a program note, this week on Musings with Arledge, solo edition, Chris will be a solo guest for himself this week. And a weekly WeRSC columnist who writes Fridays, the obvious and not so obvious, IMHO Sunday, and is an active member of the Football Writers Association of America, your moderator and producer of Inside the Trojan Huddle, Greg Katz. Before we kick off this Tuesday's edition of Inside the Trojan Huddle, here's an update of USC football and basketball news. Obviously, five-star class of 2023 tight end Deuce Robinson, 6'5", 235, from Phoenix, Arizona, Pinnacle High School. He ended the recruiting suspense last Thursday night when he announced and then signed to be a USC Trojan. Robinson is also an accomplished professional baseball prospect. The Trojans begin their fourth week of spring practice on Tuesday, heading towards the conclusion of spring ball, which culminates with the annual spring game on Saturday, April 15th in the Coliseum at noon. Free tickets for the noon USC spring game can be secured by going to USC Trojans.com. There's a limit of six free tickets per request. The spring game will also be shown live on the Pac-12 network. Trojans quarterback Caleb Williams and defensive back Kellen Bullock have been named to the 2023 Walter Camp preseason All-America first team. And on the class of 2024 recruiting front, four-star safety Aaron Flowers from Forney, Texas, is expected to announce his commitment on Friday. Trojans are expected to be very strongly in the hunt for the commitment of the Forney, Forney High School uh, Flowers. Uh, things kind of look pretty good on that end. Friends, we RSC's Inside the Trojans Huddle greatly appreciate your viewer and listenership. We encourage those of you watching on sites like YouTube to click on the red subscriber and like buttons. It's greatly valued and it's free. You can also listen to Inside the Trojans Huddle on many available podcast sites. And a reminder... WeRSE.com is offering a spring ball subscription special. You can get all the WeRSE premium content for just $29.99. That'll take you up to August 31st, 2023, or you can go $9.99 per month. So with that, let's kick it off. Panel, first give us your thoughts regarding the signing of five-star tight end Deuce Robinson with the Trojans. How much playing time do you expect to see Deuce in the fall? And what does the signing of Robinson do in the big recruiting picture going into the future? Leadoff hitter, as always, Mark Culkin, your thoughts. Yeah, pretty nice. Um, 
Look, I, I think everyone, we all anticipated it happening. Just when was it going to happen when his commitment came across? Look, USC has got a really dynamic wide receiver room. They made it like really dynamic now because if people are old enough to remember Mike Williams, this is kind of what they're getting. And when you add that to the other group, um, as Lincoln Riley said, that's a pretty unique skill set that, that Deuce Robinson brings. I mean, his catch radius alone, you know, they designate him as a tight end. I don't know if there's really such a thing as a, a tight end in, in the sense of that, that we know it. Uh, will he be blocking a little bit? Will he be downfield catching balls and creating mismatches? A lot of that. So how does it affect recruiting going forward? If USC keeps winning, they're not going to be recruiting. They're going to be selecting the players that want to play at USC. And I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of them. So it's, it was a good day on Thursday uh, because that was all that happened on Thursday, which was a good thing. But that's all that happened last Thursday. Well, that's a, that all it means a lot, actually. So, Chris, what is your perspective on uh, what this whole Deuce Robinson thing means? Well, if Mark is right that we're getting another Mike Williams, then yes, he's going to play. In fact, he's going to start because Mike Williams is the best wide receiver I've ever seen at USC. Uh, look, he's he has an unbelievable set of, of, of skills, right? I mean, I mean, six six long arms, he can run. That is that is a nightmare for opposing defenses, and so US, USC already has a lot of guys that can catch the football. Um, but he's going to play because USC doesn't have a lot of six, six guys with six, with a wingspan of six, 10 guys, uh, who can play wide receiver. And I think that's what he's going to be. I don't, I don't, I mean, he, he may be lined up as a traditional tight end occasionally, but that's not really what he's going to do. This kid's a, this kid is a very big, very skilled wide receiver. Uh, so yeah, he's going to play in the fall and, and, and USC has some, some legitimate talent then at, at the wideout spot. In terms of the big recruiting picture, look, this is the sort of recruiting battle that USC needs to win if they're going to be if they're going to be an elite program. Uh, you cannot lose. You can't lose West Coast kids. I know it's from Arizona. Same thing. You can't lose Arizona and California kids to Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State. Not 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 recruits like this. Not the five star recruits. Um, and in fact, I in my in my show this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about the importance of signing. Uh, five stars and elite prospects because the numbers are overwhelming. I know, I know, I know. Fans like to say, especially when somebody else gets a recruit, we want that. Well, star ratings don't matter. They do. I'm going to explain why they do. You have to land guys like this, and so uh, and and USC will continue to land guys like this on the offensive side of the ball because if you're an offensive player, why would you not want to play for Lincoln Riley? Uh, we'll know USC is back when they start landing guys like this on the defensive side of the ball consistently too, which I think will probably happen. Yeah. Eric, I'm, I'm kind of excited to hear your perspective because recruiting is kind of your wheelhouse. Uh, what, it, what does it all mean uh, uh, compared to what uh, Mark and what uh, Chris have said? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? So from a, from a recruiting standpoint, in this battle for him, what they said is right. It, it's huge. You can't lose a guy like that to Georgia or else it just continues that perception of USC can't 
land those guys. So, so that is, that's big as far as what it means going forward and his impact on other players. I, I think it's minimal. It's not, that's not a position where guys flock to USC because they signed a hybrid tight end wide receiver, but you have a name like that, especially a guy who takes it longer than just signing day. There was a lot of attention on him. And when USC lands him, that was the news story across really college football, certainly recruiting for that day. And that dominated. Anytime you can dominate a day's kind of news cycle in a positive way, that's that's big. So I think there, there's a help there. It's not a, a five-star quarterback who's now going to go recruit his class and bring a bunch of guys in. I mean, th- this was the tail end of that class. So you can't really do anything else in 2023 uh, for recruiting. As far as on the field, I think the idea of, I, I know a lot of people have sort of penciled him in as like a day one starter. That's tough. He's not going to get spring ball. Now his dad played and he has that mindset of he understands how to how to study, how to work out, how to do all that stuff on his own. So he's going to come in with those advantages. But you're still a true freshman. You still haven't done really anything kind of in the system. And oh, by the way, you're splitting your time between baseball and football. So it's not as if it's just full go football right now, uh, all the way into the fall and, and through the fall. So I don't know if the idea is, oh, he's a he's a day one starter and he's going to get 90 percent of the reps. But Lincoln Riley knows how to use these guys. And if he comes in and he can do something, which I, I think we all think that he can do a, quite quite a bit of things, uh, he's going to find a way in. He gives them a, a red zone weapon that is just unbelievable. His ability to kind of go up and get the ball. He's listed at 6'6", there's guys that are listed at 6'6", and play like they're 6'2". He's listed at 6'6", plays like he's seven feet tall. I mean, he he will go up and get the ball. He's a, a true mismatch. You got to see if he can do it at that level. But right now, everything he's done kind of shows he can do it because he can run. I, the, and, and that's always the thing. If you get a big guy... If you can't run, it's tougher to create that mismatch because there's a defender draped on you all the time. But he can get open. He can create space. uh, And then you think about that sort of paired up with everything else USC has at the wide receiver spot. And and you can do a lot. I mean, Lincoln Riley, when he talks about Zachariah Branch and Deuce Robinson and the guys they have coming back, you can see he gets excited about kind of what he can draw up. So... You know, the idea that he's going to come in and catch 50 passes as a true freshman, I, I don't think that's the case, but he could catch some big ones. He could catch some important ones, and uh, and and that'll matter quite a lot against, I think, what we all think is a, a tough schedule with potentially some some close games. Yeah, I think that uh, – I thought that uh, Lincoln Riley did a nice job of clarifying uh, what uh, Deuce Robinson is uh, coming into the fall. Uh, one of the things he did address was the baseball issue. Uh, a lot of people compare him to Aaron Judge. Uh, and uh, he's obviously uh, a very accomplished baseball player. But he said that because of the experience that he, being Riley, had with Kyler Murray, he's kind of got the uh, kind of got down the idea, the pattern, what should happen. He did say with Murray, there was a few rough edges that he's able to smooth out. But 
he, he thinks it can be done. It's not a problem. He understands it. The, the, the kid wants to play both sports. He did say uh, in terms of playing that he doesn't see him as an everyday, uh, every down type of tight end that he's going to be all over the place, which who knows, maybe we'll see him in the backfield uh, we, you know, we saw Jordan Addison uh, in the backfield on occasion, but uh, this is a great, great talent. I think that it does have a, uh, an effect on recruiting because he was such a big name because he signed so late. There was a lot of attention that, Oh, and he's going to USC too. Oh my goodness. So, you know, right now guys are committing for next year's class. Uh, you know, and he's somebody that they can, you know, kind of drop his name in there, even though it's an offensive tight end position. And of course we know the tight end now, uh, you know, what was Lincoln Riley going to do uh, in terms of the tight end? I guess you could say if, if, if uh, Deuce is going to be split out wide, that he's no longer considered a tight end. So I don't know if we're considering throwing to a tight end, but he'll be listed as a tight end. I, I would suspect. So, all right, let's move on. Uh, Lincoln Riley says, He's experimenting with running back uh, Raylick Brown in the slot. Are you surprised that Brown is playing some in the slot position? But more importantly, do you think there's an underlying message there? So, Mark, what's going on? No, he, you know, he's experimenting. He's seeing what he can do, lined up out there as a you know, wide receiver. Look, it's I know where you're going with this. Is there a, is the running back room a little bit too crowded and they're trying to make sure they get Raylick the opportunity to have the ball in his hands? Possibly. But you know, if they're if they're using their chess pieces, moving them around the board to see what they can do, it's spring camp. Unfortunately, you know, we don't get to see how it's being done. So getting into the mind of Lincoln Riley, you're probably gonna see it during the regular season as well. So they don't want any uh, any premature reporting of you know how they're using their their personnel. Mark, let me ask you a question. Do you think that we'll see anything that will give us a hint about Brown uh, in the spring game? I, I think we'll get a hint in the spring game, but that's it. We'll get a hint. Chris, what what are your thoughts on Brown? Well, it's not a surprise that they're trying him in the slot. I mean, I think all of us expected when he signed with USC that he would that he would play some there. He's he's an explosive kid. He's good in space. He can catch the ball. He can run routes. It makes perfect sense. I mean, um, Reggie Bush was also uh, lined up in the slot occasionally and 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 used a lot in the passing game. So I don't think it's at all a surprise. Is there an underlying message? The underlying message is that that he's an explosive kid who's good in space and can catch the ball. So they're going to move him around and get the ball in his hands. And, uh, you know, it creates mismatches when you, when you can move a guy like that into the slot. Um, if you can, if you have a tight end that can, that can line up out wide and you have running backs that can line up in the slot and you can move people around makes it difficult for defensive coordinators because they don't really know what, what the set's going to look like. It's not like the old days where you knew you knew how many tight ends there were going to be. You roughly knew that, okay, they're, they're bringing in a second tight end, so we're going to have two tights, two running backs. You don't really know that, and I think, and I think Lincoln Riley uh, wants defense coordinators not to know that. So, no, he's going to bounce around. He's going to play some in the backfield. He's going to play some in the slot. He's going to return some kicks, and, uh, and I suspect he's going to get, you know, 10, 12 touches a game is my guess. 
Eric, is he going to get 10 or 12 touches a game? What, how, do you, how do you see Lincoln Riley dealing with this situation? Yeah, 10 or, 10 or 12 is a lot just with the other guys that they have out there. But I, I think in some games, absolutely he will. So when Relique Brown committed to USC and, and then when he signed, he said the whole expectation is Lincoln Riley is going to get me the ball in space. Handing him the ball off every single time in the backfield is not getting the ball in space. I mean, he was always going to move outside. He was going to play in the slot. He played a bunch of wide receiver last year. I mean, he he lined up out wide a, a ton, um, especially late in the, we saw in the Cotton Bowl, he was out there and, and caught passes uh, pretty much as, as a wide receiver. So yeah, the expectation is he was always going to do that. And, and I think uh, you bring in, you know, Marshawn Lloyd's there now, you still have Austin Jones and, and that running back room is full enough now where you can get the the two early enrollee freshmen are there too, Darwin Barlow. So so you can kind of run that running back room with those guys and let Relique move outside and play that wide receiver spot. Again, it's it's less wide receiver and more that's where the open field is. And so so we can get you out there faster than running you out of the backfield out there. That's what they're going to do. I mean, it, it is becoming sort of positionless, you know, football with the offense. Like McCree, he talked about how, you know, they're using a tight end in 10 personnel. Like 10 personnel by definition doesn't have a tight end. And so you, you just kind of put different guys out there and, and you're going to want to call it certain things. I mean, Chris talked about that where, okay, it's two tight ends and two running backs. Now you have to actually look at it and be like, well, they're lined up like it's two tight ends and two running backs, but it's four wide receivers doing that. So so that's kind of the, the message that I'm taking with that is, is really, yeah, he's lining up the slot, but he was never fully a running back. He was always just an offensive weapon that can play and do all these things and he can catch really well. And so if you can do that, yeah, you, you stick him out there. And, and so I think we're going to see quite a bit of that. I think you mentioned Jordan Addison, you know, that, that touchdown against UCLA where he kind of gets lined up as a running back. Different plays are going to call for different things. Guys are going to fill in, in in different places. And so I think you want really as as experienced as possible in a number of different places. And that's that's what you do during spring ball. And and I thought it was interesting that Lincoln Riley said that where he just said, hey, we're going to put absolutely everything we can on film during the spring then we're going to find out what we're actually good at and what we're going to do. And then we start sort of narrowing things down in the fall. So yeah, really Brown could play, he could line up in the slot all spring and then they realize eh, that's not, that's not our best offensive set. And then they don't run it. I don't think that's the case. I think, I think really Brown outside is, is one of your better, better looks uh, offensively, but I think that's it. And yeah, for, for the spring game, sure. He'll, he'll, I, I'd assume we'd see, a few plays with him out there. Okay, I I see uh, Rayleigh Brown as somewhat of uh, uh, I don't want to say he's a victim, but I thought that some of the play calling for him was very, uh, should we say, uh, tight. Uh, I wanted to see more uh, fly sweeps that would have got him in some space. I think he's tailor made for that. I would have liked to have seen some uh, screen passes to him, which would have been in space. So it's really going to be, to me, uh, uh, how they use him. I, I understand they put in some plays for him uh, that they think is going to be uh, highly effective. Uh, I think that's a good idea. 
and you know, I, I go back to what Chris said, the 10 or 12 touches. Well, that's an interesting uh, number. Uh, and I think that's kind of what I'm looking for is I'll know how much they're using him by how many touches he gets uh, and the play selection that they use. And hopefully they find something that uh, works out uh, a combination of the best of it. Uh, all right, let's move up uh, to this. Uh, up to this point in spring practice, and again, the media is not allowed to actually see any scrimmaging, although we once in a while we get dropped a word that, oh, and by the way, we scrimmaged yesterday. Uh, which offensive group, from what you hear and listen to at this point in spring, uh, sticks out to you the most, Mark Culkin? Um, uh, I guess the the potential of that wide receiver room, the running backs, what they're they're going to have the uh, the ability to do with, you know, when you got Caleb Williams back there, he just, because he's such a threat by himself, those other guys are going to have some really great opportunities because one eye is always going to be on Caleb and that makes those guys just that much better. But for me to answer this question, I think it's really the offensive line because there's, there's still so many questions there outside of Justin Dietrich and Jonah Monheim. Um, there has to have been a reason why, you know, Lincoln Riley felt it was necessary to reschedule last week's practice. They injuries have really never been talked about. Um, what we see when we're there, we're not allowed to talk about ourselves. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's the offensive line room and the uncertainty there even though they brought in so many guys. I don't think we've really gotten a really good update other than the fact that they're having some good days and some bad days against the defensive line. So take from that is where the offense is, where the offense is at right now. Chris Arledge, what sticks out to you the most on offense from what information you've acquired? Uh, I think that inside receiver position, the slot position, because – you already had Mario Williams and Taj Washington who played a lot last year and are good players. And, and I think Lincoln Riley has a lot of faith in both of them. You add Zach Branch to the mix. Zach Branch is going to play a lot this year. And you hear the, I, I think we already knew he was going to be uh, a star, but you start to hear the rumors about, about, uh, about what he can do on the field. And now you're talking about Rayleigh Brown also playing some of that position. That's a lot of dudes, first of all. I mean, you got a lot of guys at those at, at those inside receiver spots and you have a lot of guys that can make plays. And, um, you know, the, the two younger guys may be more talented than the two older guys, but the two older guys can make plays. They made a lot last year. So I think that I think that uh, I think that part of the of the offense really stands out to me. There's just a lot of guys who who can create mismatches with linebackers or safeties or nickelbacks or whoever you stick out there to, to cover them. Um, so I think, I think we're going to get some big plays out of that group. Eric McKinney. Yeah. The, the answer about the offense until Caleb Williams leaves is Caleb Williams, right? I mean, that that's, that's what sticks out is that he's, he's taken steps forward from last year when he was the best player in college football. Uh, that's the easy answer, but I I'm with Mark on the offensive line, mostly because the guys who showed up out of the transfer portal, and that's Michael Tarquin and, and Jared Kingston, they didn't really land quickly at the spots that, that I think we anticipated them to land at. Michael Tarquin played a, a ton of right tackle. I mean, oh, an overwhelming amount of his snaps at Florida were at right tackle. And then when he shows up, he's at, at left tackle. 
Uh, Jarrett Kingston played left tackle all last year for Washington State and did really well there. He shows up and and he's slotted in at, at one of the guard spots. So that to me was immediately interesting. And then you start to kind of figure out, well, how how's that going to shake out? How are they going to to you know kind of develop that line and and move guys around? And and there is some movement and and still questions about kind of where does everybody land when this is done because you, you still anticipate Ethan White showing up in the summer and and being plugged in somewhere i mean maybe he, he might be the most talented of, of the three uh transfer portal guys coming in is there potential that another guy out of out of the transfer portal there so so that the offensive line again because caleb williams is caleb williams and you need to keep him healthy all year offensive line is going to be a one b to caleb's one a in terms of we need to get this kind of kind of locked up and and set so so that for me is the question. I, Chris is right about the wide receiver spot, but if you take the wide receivers, the the running backs and all that, and just kind of jumble them up and, and throw them out there, you're going to have talent out there. Um, you, you want the best and you need it to play at an elite level. Uh, but getting that offensive line and all those questions kind of figured out, be curious kind of what USC coaches feel they need to know by the end of spring or need to have locked up. I don't, I don't think they feel like they need to leave spring with a definite starting five. I think they want to know who they can play at certain positions, who can handle responsibility at tackle and, and guard and that kind of stuff. So um, that, that to me is going to be definitely the spot when, you know, when we get to see them go in the spring game, what the rotations look like, who's playing where, how they produce all that kind of stuff is, is going to be where my eyes go to. First, after I watch Caleb Williams for for a couple of snaps. Uh, since Eric mentioned it, uh, next week's uh, Inside the Trojans huddle, we're going to preview the spring game. Uh, and then the following week, we'll do a spring game review in depth, of course. And I, I'm sure many of you will want to hear the perspectives. Uh, for me, uh, right now, when I think about a position group sticking out, uh, uh, obviously, I like the offensive line, I, but right now they're just moving guys around they're, so that if one guy gets hurt, somebody else can slot that position. But I think the wide receivers uh, situation, uh, and situation always sounds like it's a negative, but just in saying, uh, man, the stuff I'm hearing about um, Zachariah Branch is like unworldly. I mean, players are saying it, you know, they, when, you know one of the big questions I always uh, listen to is, who out there do you like? Who's who's really showing up? I one of the players said something along the lines of, "Man, if you could see what this guy's doing during practice, it's unbelievable." And you know, when you're impressing your own teammates, that, that's a pretty good sign. So for me, uh, I think the wide receiver group uh, sticks out. Although uh, my focus always is is on the offensive line. Uh, all right, let's end the first half here with this question: Lincoln Riley can't wait for the his next batch of offensive recruits from the class of 2023 that's going to arrive. And I always find this interesting. These They're either arriving in the late spring, summer, or fall. Pick your, your, your season that they're supposed to arrive. But which offensive summer recruit uh, that SC has signed that's going to come in uh, that is not out for spring ball, of course, is of most interest to you? Mark, who would that be for you? Is Deuce answer is Deuce Robinson the, the the wrong answer? I mean, 
<laughs> since we've been talking about him, there's really only other one player because I don't think anybody from the offensive line group is going to have any type of um, impact this year other than at practice helping out with depth. So Jacoby Lane, let's see, you know, how, how high he can jump. Throw, you know, throw a jump ball, see what he can do. Really, there's, everybody that USC is going to depend on in 2023 is on the roster unless somebody shows up from the transfer portal like another type of Jordan Addison. You know, maybe there's a wide receiver out there somewhere playing in the Midwest. Who knows? Chris? Uh, I'm not even going to touch what, what Mark was, uh, was hinting at, but... Uh... <laughs> It's already a crowded wide receiver room, but I guess we take him. Uh, Mark was focused on high school recruits, but I was thinking when you asked the question about uh, about Ethan White, um, uh, USC is going to have five. They're going to have five really good starters in the offensive line, um, and I think right now they're trying to figure out uh, where different people can play just in case you start to have injuries because you always have injuries up front. USC played pretty well in the offensive line last year. I think what they didn't have is they didn't have somebody who was just a big bully who could just push people around in the run game. I think that was, I, I think we had some, some guys that I think we had some athleticism. I think we had some guys who were smart. Um, but I think Ethan White is a guy, uh, a Deuce Latui type who you can plug in and can just smash people and give you a lot of space running through that a gap. And, and so I'm really, I'm really excited to see what he can do because I think that I think he's going to be the guy at one of those at one of those guard spots, probably left guard, and um, and if he can do what I expect he'll do, that's going to make a big difference in the running game. It matters a great deal if you can just if you can just run behind your guard and know you're going to get three yards, right? I mean that matters a lot. And that and over and over again in, in a football season where, where you have a third and two, um, it's nice to not have to rely on the athleticism of guys who are who are quick and 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 smart, know their assignments, but just a guy who's a masher who can just crush people in front of him. And I hope he can do that. So he's the one I'm most excited to to see when he arrives. In fact, God wants four yards. So you should get Tim Davis for one of your next shows, Chris. That would be a I'd love that. I'd love that. Eric, who uh, who gets you excited that you want to see uh, come in in, in the uh, spring, summer, fall, whatever uh, that you have most interest in that is not participating in in spring practice? Yeah, it's a, it's those two guys for this year. I, long term, long term. I, I mean, long term, it's also those two guys. But but if I'm picking somebody who's not those two, Micah Banuelos is is my guy. I, he's going to come in, and Chris talked about a a mauler in the run game Micah Van Willows is one of those guys that at like five on five events or or offensive line defensive line one-on-ones like he's not a guy that people enjoy lining up against he will he will run you into a different field or the bleachers or whatever it is uh he he is he can be a devastating blocker I'm excited to see because he's a potential, you know, center of the future. He's a guy that Josh Henson went after one of the first offers that he extended when he got to USC. That's how much he liked him and, and was recruiting him at Texas A&M. So he's a guy that I want to see 
how does he kind of make that transition? How quickly can he jump in? Because again, it's it's not as if they need him to play center right now. And it's not as if you'd ever want a true freshman to come in and play in front of Caleb Williams. But if you're talking down the line and and a guy who's going to play for you in the Big Ten, uh, he's a guy that I think is important to really start going quickly uh, when he shows up and and getting him developed. So he's a guy that I'm interested in. Every, every, really every offensive lineman who's coming in uh, in the in the summer is kind of that developmental guy that the USC coaches clearly liked a lot more than the recruiting services did. And so I'm interested to see kind of how they all, how they all shake out. And if the USC coaches did a good job in kind of, yes, that's our guy, you know, we, we want him because so far Elijah page uh, has been phenomenal uh, showing up early in the spring. He's a guy that a lot of people talk. I mean, it's not to the level of Zach branch, like you're talking about, but Coaches, players, that there, there's been a lot of praise uh, for Elijah Page early on. All right, I'm going to uh, make it short and sweet here. Uh, Deuce Robinson and Ethan White for me, but of the two, if I had to pick one that is the most intriguing to me, Ethan White by far, because he's going to have a big impact. And I think the thing to remember is if you look at the USC schedule, the first six games – are not the challenging part of the schedule, which means that offensive line is going to have plenty of time to get ready, and they'll need to be ready when they start playing the back half of the USC schedule. And by that time, I think Ethan White will be a, a, a very important piece. And as Chris mentioned, they they need a Deuce Latouille, somebody in there that's, that's, a, that's a mauler, a masher. So we'll keep an eye on that. All right, we moved to halftime, and I thought this was uh, an appropriate question, especially after Chris had interviewed uh, Pat Rule with uh, talking about the uh, Pete Carroll era. Hey, by the uh, way, can I can I jump in? I wish you would. Go ahead. Please go watch the Pat Rule interview. I, it, not because of anything I did. It wasn't interesting. But Pat was interesting, and he was completely forthcoming about everything I asked him about uh, in ways actually surprised me a little bit. So if you haven't seen the interview, go watch the interview with Pat Rule. You're, you're not going to regret it, I promise. And I underscore what, what Chris said. I, I Chris did a great job in these interviews, but this one was important because Pat did talk about the NCAA and his feelings about it. And he didn't mince words about uh, Pat Hayden and some of the others that were there uh, that he felt could have uh, handled it better or differently so yes uh, i'd say go to youtube or podcast and listen to it it'd be well worth your time spent so here's the question for halftime what was the greatest era in modern usc football was it the john mckay era 1960 to 1975 the john robinson era and i'm referring to the first time that uh j rob was the coach 1976 to 1982 or was it the pete carroll era 2001 to 2009 uh, we'll, we'll we'll ask uh, Eric McKenney, uh about what he thinks is the greatest era in of the three. I mean, it's right. It's tough to to answer not having actually experienced them. Um, I, I'm tempted to go with Pete Carroll's era simply because I I would assume the competition level across sort of college football was elevated at that point and winning like that 
uh, during that era, I think potentially was more difficult. Now, I would think that the more dominating teams, I mean, talk about like the 62 team and, and some of those teams are just absolute all timers. That 2008 defense, I think I would put up there with just about any of them. And that's based on personnel. That's based on numbers. That's based on everything there. So when you have that, when you have back-to-back Heisman winners and and the offensive explosion, that, that had everything for me. And the wins were just so dominant. The, the 34, game winning streak. I mean, that, that to me kind of pushes things over the edge to that, but again, I, you know, not having experienced the other two, I I don't have that same kind of personal connection uh, with those, but, but I think just, it gets, I think it gets tougher to win like that. The more you get towards now, because I, there's so much more kind of spread across the country and and more good teams um, than than possibly there there were back then. Uh, Mark, how do you see it? Which one's the best era in your opinion? Yeah, you know when you when you just start lining up the the coaching accolades against each other, they're all three of them have some really impressive resumes. When and when you think about how John McKay could have had at least two more Heisman winners on his resume, um, but West Coast voters I think canceled him out. You had what Chuck Muncie up there at, at Cal. Um, Eric nailed it with Pete Carroll. I mean, thirty-four game winning streak. You had sixty-three straight games of twenty points or more scored by the offense. Just the. The, the domination of owning the the, the polls, the, the narrative in the media. And, you know, not to take anything away from, from Coach Robinson. I mean, his personnel put stock the NFL for, for a long time. When, when you look at his rosters, the, the question came down to, was it his, was it his recruiting or was it, was it McKay's? doesn't matter. He, he gets credit for it, but yeah. Uh, what Pete Carroll did, that that level of domination, and then not even being able to see that 2018, 2018 compete for the championship, man, um, that, that was a really dominant time. It, it's hard. You had to actually get out there, be a part of it, feel the energy that was around it to really understand how incredible that was. Chris? Yeah, so I think we can I think we can cut out the John Robinson era, not because Robinson, not because he didn't have great teams, um, but I think that I think that the program was stronger when Robinson took over than when he left six or seven years later, and and so I, I think just for that reason, I would I would cut his I would cut his era out. McKay and Carroll both took over programs that were that were in trouble. Um, and and built them into into powerhouses. McKay gets the McKay gets the nod in terms of longevity. You're talking about 16 years rather than nine. That matters. He won four titles to Pete's two. Although, 
Although, look, one of let's let's be honest, one of McKay's titles was because Oklahoma was on probation. They won. They won the one poll. He won the other. That Oklahoma team was better than the 1974 USC team. USC USC lost lost a game and tied a game. OU absolutely steamrolled everybody they played that year. Um, so I think the national titles are fairly close, especially in light of the uh, uh, of the the differences in the in the tenure. I think Pete gets a nod for me for for one major reason. The absolute uh, consistency of that seven year stretch, um, seven straight years in the top four. McKay had six. Uh, he had six top four finishes in his tenure. He did seven in a row. He had five out of six years in the top two. Um, you know, it, it, Eric mentioned the the long the long streak. Um, uh, Pete also had the streak where where he didn't lose by more than more than uh, uh, a single score for what seven years. That that level of consistent dominance is something that even John McKay didn't achieve. Um, and very few coaches have. Nick Saban has. Nick Saban also had five out of six finishing in the top two. Um, and, and, and Saban had more national titles. Um, although, let's be honest, if USC would have gotten the love from the pollsters that Nick Saban always gets, Pete would have had some more titles too, because uh, that 2008 team was uh, was the one that really stands out for me. That 2008 team would have beaten the tar out of Florida or Oklahoma. It was a freaking joke that uh, that USC wasn't in the game. So I'm going to give it to I'm going to give it to Pete because his seven year run was better than any seven year run of McKay's, I think. But it's awfully close. He also went 14 and two versus USC, UCLA, and Notre Dame combined. So major hat. That's a good point. That it's an excellent point, Mark. Um, well, I lived through all three, so I, I I probably have a little bit of a different perspective, but that doesn't mean I don't come to the same conclusion. Uh, you know, McKay, uh, had he not left USC uh, when he did, I, in talking with our, uh, our staff uh, analyst, uh, Kevin Bruce, he always told me that that the team that he was on, uh, that he captained in 75, which was undefeated until McKay decided he was going to the Tampa Bay expansion team. He said, we were good enough to win the national title, but the whole thing fell apart when McKay made that announcement and they went up to Cal and they, they took a loss there and then they really struggled for the most part. Uh, I think the McKay era... I think, and I've said this before, McKay, to me, when I look at these three coaches, McKay was royalty. Uh, he was the epitome of a football coach. It wasn't about, I mean, he was highly entertaining when he wanted to be. Uh, very glib, obviously, tons of quotes that are still said today. And I, I think that the fact that he went on for 15 years obviously gave him more opportunity to have some downer years. And he did in uh, 1970 and 71. Uh, they went, I think it was 6-4 uh, was their record. And obviously then 72 came and knocked, knocked it out of the park with a national championship. But I really honestly, when I look at electricity at games, uh, under McKay and Robinson, uh, people would show up for the big games, Notre Dame, US, you know, UCLA, and then, uh, you know, if it was the Rose Bowl, 
But I have to say, in all honesty, that the Pete Carroll era was probably the most dynamic that I ever been a part of. Because when SC's selling out for Cal and the other teams, uh, because the program was so great, so electric, and as has been mentioned, they even, I mean, let's be honest, Pete, Pete Carroll should have won more national championships. I'm sorry, he should have. Uh, the minute he got rid of Norm Chow, I predicted at the time, things are going to go south, not sooner rather than later, but it's going to happen. Hiring Kiffin, to me, was a mistake. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Kiff gave you the big break, but it hurt the program. Uh, but that being said, you know, SC fans, myself included, probably got a little bit spoiled when we said to ourselves, oh, we only won the conference this year. We're not going to the national title game. And I think that gets lost in, in success. How many uh, conference titles uh, Carroll won in a row, and he deserves all the credit. So I'm going to end the discussion by saying I think the Pete Carroll era was the greatest era in USC uh, uh, modern football history. So with that, let's go to the second half kickoff. Uh, panel up to this point of spring practice, which defensive position group uh, from the information gathered today sticks out the most to you? So, Chris, what, what group sticks out the most at this point from what you know? Uh, defensive line. We're hearing good things, which is nice because – I think everybody realizes that this season hinges on that defensive line. If those guys are good, it's going to be, it's going to be very difficult to be USC next year. I mean, the offense is going to be so good. There's so much talent. There's depth on the offensive line. You have the best player in the country. And, and when everybody else isn't playing well, he may still pull a rabbit out of his hat because he's Superman. So the offense is going to be fantastic. I, the, it sounds like uh like Lincoln Riley is pleased with the secondary play. If the defensive line is good, USC is going to be very difficult to beat. And so that's the most important thing uh, that, that we need to look at. And we can't watch the guys practice, but we're actually hearing rumors that these guys can play a little bit, that the new guys can play, that the old guys have started to develop. So that's what I'm most interested in uh, because that means, that means everything for this coming season. Eric, what sticks out to you? The defensive line, but because Chris talked about that, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the secondary. Uh, I thought I think it's been interesting how many times Lincoln Riley has talked about that they look the way they're supposed to look at USC now, and he, and he said that about um, seems like every position on the roster. But he specifically talked about, and he he was kind of in the middle of a. A, a comment to a question and just sort of said the secondary was too skinny last year. Like all, all the, all the guys across the board, too skinny. So the fact that he's seeing that, like they, they put on weight, they are still, you know, they're still running, but they're more physical. Uh, Jacoby Covington is a name that has come up a bunch this off season and really kind of started coming on at the end of last year. Uh, a lot of people are talking about kind of Christian Roland Wallace being that Makai Blackman replacement. They may have already had it in Jacoby Covington. I mean, he came over last off season. He might be the transfer that kind of steps into that spot. I think hopes are high for Roland Wallace to, to be a big impactful player. Uh, when you talk about those two plus Sierra Wright, again, getting a lot of praise uh, from Riley this off season, Damani Jackson in that same boat, you're talking about, 
four cornerbacks now who are potential starters. Zion Branch is healthy and, and playing. The coaches have loved Bryson Shaw from the time he got here. Kalen Bullock trying to kind of improve. So, so you start listing names. Max Williams didn't get to him. Lincoln Riley this past weekend heaped a ton of praise on Jalen Smith and Latrell McCutcheon uh, at nickel. You're talking about you're getting towards eight, nine, ten names in that secondary where last year you just, can we get five out there? Can we get five out there to, to make a play at any point? So if that group has really stepped up in the spring and I, and I know spring is time for coaches to kind of mix in some coach speak and, and pump it up a little bit, but uh, like it really doesn't seem to always go out of his way just to offer flat praise. Um, so I, I think that to me is a spot that is important because Chris is right. If the defensive line plays a A plus football, you're going to win more games than maybe any other position group playing a A plus football. Uh, but you got, you got to tackle some guys in the secondary because the defensive line isn't going to stop everybody. So you got to tackle some guys, you got to knock some balls down. You got to make plays uh, in the secondary. If this group is starting to do that, that's a big help because if the offense gets you a 14 point lead, you can't just let teams march up and down the field, throwing the ball against you the way we saw in a, in a few games last year. Okay, Mark, what, what sticks out to you? Yeah, it's the defensive line. It's when you, when, when you all of a sudden now you're, you're, you're hearing Corey Foreman is playing like everyone anticipated him playing coming out of high school. It, if it was so, it was as simple as just moving him over to Sean Nua's room, putting his hand on the dirt and letting him do what he does best. You've got Kion Bars, who is, you know, apparently having a really good spring camp. Um, you're hearing about players taking the offensive linemen and rubbing their helmet and their face in the dirt after the play uh, because they, they took a personal last year. And if, if that's how they're going to react, I'm fine with it. And because of the domino effect that it starts up front, it's going to allow the linebackers to maybe have some momentum coming forward to make a tackle rather than having the, the running back, having a clean run coming at them, as well as if the defensive line is getting some, some pressure into the backfield, the secondary's job is going to be a lot easier. They're not going to be in coverage for as long. So I, as long as I keep hearing good things about the defensive line room, that's the that, that's good news. Yeah, and I, I agree with Mark. Uh, to me, it's the defensive line. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, uh, the fact that uh, Lincoln Riley is really emphasizing how pleased he is with the defensive line and he is right when he says they're bigger, they're better, they're stronger. Uh, it's a really big upgrade. And the only question I have is the depth of the defensive line. But I think the front down three, should we say, uh, uh, is very intriguing because they have a history of having been successful or been big time recruits coming out of high school. And uh, I, I don't think anybody's going to argue that uh, if that defensive line can play, uh, as Chris pointed out, to a, a certain level, uh, that's really going to be advantageous. It depends on how healthy that line will be in the last six games of the season. They could really be a difference maker. All right, let's move on here. Uh, Lincoln Riley can't wait for next year's batch of 
2023 defensive recruits to arrive in late spring. Which defensive recruit arriving in late spring is of the most interest to you? Uh, let's start off with uh, Chris Arledge. Who do you want to see defensively? Elijah Hughes. I, I don't. I don't remember ever seeing a bigger a bigger um, mismatch between a guy's star rating with the recruiting services and his tape. I mean, you watch his tape and he like jumps off the screen like, holy smokes, that guy is quick. He's aggressive. He's got a motor. He's running people down. Uh, maybe And maybe he just played against a bunch of guys that look like me. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. But I can't wait to see what that kid can do because his, his tape is incredible. And if you watch his tape and then you and then you and you look at the fact that he's like a low star recruit, you think something's wrong here. I mean, either either there's something weird about that tape. Maybe maybe he hired Steven Spielberg to doctor it up for him or uh, or there are a bunch of recruiting services and, and head coaches who really miss the boat. So he's the most intriguing guy for me. I can't wait to see what he's got. Who intrigues you the most, Eric? Yeah, I'm I'm glad that Hughes got mentioned because I was going to throw in a mention for him if, if the other guys went somewhere else. But I, I'll say Braylon Shelby. Uh, he's a guy that USC targeted early, and then we watched his recruiting ranking go up and up and up and up and up as he did more and more uh, as a senior. He's a, he's a young guy for his class, so you figure that development is still – uh, still coming and USC needs they they need to find impact guys at that rush end spot and so I don't think it matters if you're like a seventh year senior coming in or a true freshman they're, they're going to throw you at the wall on there and see see if you can stick see if you can play see what you can do so I think he's a guy that brings he's got the size already to kind of play and again you, as a true freshman you're certainly not expecting him to go take that spot and play 90% of the snaps there. Uh, but if he gets in sparingly and gives you four sacks or five sacks or a couple impact plays or, or something, uh, that's huge, I think, coming at that spot for a true freshman. So I, I, I'd like to see how he fits in there. I, you know, Jamil Muhammad and Ramel Hyde and, and guys like that, um, they're a potential answer there. But, but my assumption is that USC coaches are going to look at anybody who gives them anything at that spot and so for him when when he gets here i'm curious how he stacks up how he looks uh what he can do kind of very quickly hitting the ground at usc all right mark yeah i agree with chris going third in this category sucks because usually the guy you want to talk about has already spoken about so um i'll stick with the russian i'll go with uh dj david Peavy see what he can bring. He's got that similar size that Braylon Shelby has, just not the same recruiting fanfare. So, uh, you know, I'll root for the underdog here. Again, that rush-in position, as well as the, you know, the, the safety position, you need productivity in Alex Grinch's system at those two positions. And if, if you can't get at that rush-in position, um, I don't know what to do. So, yeah. We, we talked about Braylon Shelby. Um, let's talk about DJ PB. He come, he's a local kid from San Diego. He's got a lot of athleticism. Let's see if he's that under the radar guy that kind of pops up and shows up in fall camp and everybody's talking about him. 
Yeah, I think Peavy's uh, one that that's very intriguing. And like, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Mark. Didn't receive the fanfare, quite the fanfare that some of the others did. But for me, uh, it's a dead tie uh, between Braylon Shelby and Elijah Hughes. I, I really, really like Hughes' motor. And I look at it and you project at the size he is today and what he will be after after a year in the weight room and that sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, to me, it's very it's very exciting, actually, even though they, they play different positions. One's a rush end, one looks like a true defensive lineman. But those are the two for me that I'm, I'm intrigued on. Uh, all right, moving on here. Uh, and I think there was something that uh, Mark Culkin wrote about uh, uh, and I think it was worthy of discussion. Uh, Lincoln Riley canceled a practice day last week due to the amount of injuries at this point in spring. The missed practice will be added this week or perhaps next week, which means one of these final two weeks will be a four-day practice. But then one of our panelists says, who knows, maybe that, that missed practice will happen after the spring game. Uh, we'll find out probably soon enough but who knows? Uh, so the question is, panel, do you think based on the public information that practices have been, have they been too physical? Uh, and wasn't that one of the uh, Clay Helton practice complaints was that the practices weren't physical enough? Chris, what do you, what do you read into this? Unless he's putting these players inside the Thunderdome and forcing them to fight to the death, the answer is <laughs> no. The spring is when you have to be physical. I mean, this is when this is when you can get a guy digged up and he has many, many months to recover. It's hard to it's hard to go uh, it's hard to go all out taking people to the ground on the Wednesday before the Notre Dame game. Uh, and and look, uh, have there been injuries? Sure, there are guys that are banged up, but we haven't been hearing about serious injuries. We haven't been hearing about uh, season-ending injuries to guys. So. Uh, I think even the injury side is overblown. Um, you cannot be an elite football team if you're not physical. And you can't be a physical football team unless you practice hard and physically. And when you do that, people will get hurt. So no, I, I don't even have to watch the practices to know that they're not too physical. Uh, they have to be physical. And I would be concerned if we weren't having injuries. All right, Eric, how, how concerning is this? Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's it's the spring. So you get guys who are missing it because of kind of off-season surgery, right? Like the, the recovery process for them, if they can't go full contact, that guy's out. You have guys who went in the transfer portal and you have guys that aren't here yet. So your numbers for spring are down anyway. And if that happens at a at a position, I mean, you're looking at at a tight end spot uh, that lost Ethan Ray off last year's roster, doesn't have Jude Wolf this spring. Malcolm Epps goes in the transfer portal. You're waiting on Kate Eldridge to get here in the summer. That that that's a bunch of guys that, that you're missing. So uh, you have offensive linemen, five, five, four or five offensive linemen who are going to show up in the summer. You don't have them right now, and so when you're talking about how many numbers do we need to run a full physical practice? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's good that he decided, look, let's not sleepwalk through a practice and not and and just kind of put guys out and, and not hit. Let's move it 
and we'll do it some other time when we have enough players there. So no, I think, I think it's a, a byproduct of, of, uh, this being spring, the roster, not being what the roster is going to be, uh, in the fall. And yeah, you're, I mean, you're going to get guys, guys dinged up when you, when you hit and when you practice the way you need to practice. All right. What do we think, Mark? Are they too physical or not? Are they just right? Or we got to dial it back a notch. I, I I could not care any less if they're too physical or not physical enough. My point when I was talking about this was, and I was using Lincoln Riley's example of how he had to learn how to use Kyler Murray as a two-sport two star as far as recovery is concerned. So keeping it in that context, if the body needs time to recover between sports, I have to imagine the same context applies during spring camp especially when they had three practices, took 11 days off, and then they came back. And after three practices, they needed another day off. So I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just pointing out, you know, factually what's been taking place and wondering, you know, if the roster is deeper and it's more sturdier, are we really postponing a practice because the tight end numbers were low? Again, we're not allowed to talk about who we see that maybe not able to practice. Was it, you know, is it the rush end group? Is it the offensive line group? We don't know because we're not allowed to talk about it. So it was just, you know, something to think about, talk about. No one's, no one's in trouble, I hope. I'm looking forward to Mark breaking down the pillow fight spring game that he's, uh, he's trying to push for. You know, I, I, are they going to have enough pillows? I, I'm concerned about that. Colton uh, complained every week that Clay Helton practiced too hard. That's just who he is. He hates hard practice. <laughs> that was me. Okay, well, all right, since you brought up the subject. But no, actually, Chris, you raised a point. If Clay Helton had pulled this page out of his playbook, all hell breaks loose. But Lincoln Riley has, you know, he's earned the, the benefit of the doubt. Well, no, no, no. Clay, Clay Helton wouldn't get in trouble for, for postponing a practice because guys are getting too beat up in his physical practices. Clay Helton just skipped practices because he figured we're already as good as we need to be. And then he'd go out and win seven games. That was the problem. Players telling him that they were too injured to participate. It was more, no defense of Clay Helton in this whatsoever. All right. Well, first of all, I just uh, I think Mark is unfairly being attacked uh, that he complains all the time. He does not complain all the time. Let's I want to make that clear. Just most. No, I mean, he's got to sleep sometime. Yeah, he does. You know, he needs, you know, you talk about players recouping and going. Mark needs that that little time out to recuperate like the players do. And I I I fully support that. Uh, I thought one of the great, uh, you know, I, I can't even believe it. Sometimes we're even discussing Clay Helton when it comes to practicing hard because, sorry, they just didn't practice physical. I know having watched McKay spring practices, physical Robinson, physical Carroll, physical. But I thought one of the all I have to just bring is one of the great all time Clay Helton remarks was when he was talking about his running backs and not carrying the ball a lot. He said, you know, we have to save them because we don't want them to have a lot of tread on the tires for their NFL career. So basically he's saving his own players for their benefit. So they'll still have enough in the tank when they go to the NFL. I, I just, 
That one just kind of blew my mind, to be quite honest with you. Well, Clay was known for developing NFL talent. So yes, he I mean, was. Now, now we know how he went about it. Well, you know what? Uh, I, I think the in practice, I'm sure he explained it well in his coaches' clinics when he talked in front of uh, coaches, probably sold them on it. Uh, okay, let's uh, conclude the uh, regular uh, portion of the show here with, are you concerned at this point that the recruiting class of 2024 has just one commit? That would be tight end Joey Olson from Lake Oswego, Oregon, uh, Lake Ridge High School. What 2024 recruit commitment do you think will ignite this class, Chris? Um, good question. I, I, I think Dylan Riola would probably ignite the class. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I will answer the, am I concerned with just one recruit? No, I'm not. Um, it's still early. Uh, the big recruiting days are still coming up, including one in June. And most importantly, uh, I, I pay attention to what Scott Schrader says, and he says things are different and in a very good way this year than they were last year. Uh, there's some real excitement around the program, as there should be. So I don't think I don't think we have anything to worry about in terms of this year's recruiting class, unless unless the the team just falls apart on the field, in which case we may have problems. But otherwise, I don't think you know this this is probably going to be a top five class, is my guess. So no, I'm not worried at all. Eric McKenney, you're the uh, recruiting guru outside of Scott Schrader, our our own savant. Um, what what do you see? Who's going to ignite this class? I mean, Chris is right that it, that it would if if Lincoln Riley can close the deal for Dylan Rayola, that that's the answer. Um, if he, you know, he's trending to Georgia at this point. If that ends up being it, you assume then Lincoln pivots to another quarterback whenever he needs to. He doesn't. Lincoln Riley doesn't seem to feel pressured at all by quarterback recruiting. He's going to take his own time. He's going to go after the guys that he wants. I don't think he's ever going to say, oh, my gosh, we got to, we got to figure out what to do a quarterback. Like, that, that guy lands quarterbacks. That's going to be fine. So if, if there is a 2024 quarterback that he then moves to and pushes on, it's always the quarterback that, that can start a class going outside of that. And, and it's tough because – Guys aren't in in a real hurry to commit anymore. It 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 literally pays to be recruited at this point to to hold out to wait to have as many schools as possible kind of in the mix. Take your trips, uh, make connections in different markets, all of that stuff. So the idea that teams, big time programs, are going to absolutely load up in March and April. I just don't think we're going to see that USC has put itself in a really good spot in 2024 with a lot of big time guys. If if you're asking me who could maybe tip the scales to get other guys to commit, you know, Brandon Baker is a big time offensive lineman for modern day. If he wanted to go early, I think people would, you know, take notice of that and, and potentially follow him. Uh, there's a lot of skill guys in LA, um, you know, Jason Mitchell, maybe is a guy that, that would have enough connections to kind of pull guys with him. So uh, it, it would have to be sort of a name. Marcellus Williams is a corner uh, at St. John Bosco, the younger brother of Max Williams. Those are sort of name guys that would be able to kind of connect and, and bring other guys in, but no, a, a big time five-star or a quarterback kind of is always the, 
the, the Pied Piper for the class. But I think once we really start to see guys come out for the spring game and then June, when those official visits really start to hit uh, for USC, I think that's when when stuff really starts to pick up um, for USC. You mentioned Aaron Flowers kind of at the top. Again, he's a he's a Texas kid. If he does indeed commit to USC, I don't know if he's a, a kind of getting the ball rolling uh, type of recruit for USC. But, it you know, it adds players. And anytime you, you add players to the class, that that's a positive thing. I don't think there's any I don't think there's any worry at this point with just one guy in the class if usc wins this year the way they're sort of planning on uh this this ends up being a top five class i think when you look at high school recruits and transfer portal and and the guys that they end up bringing in uh for that 2024 roster eric let me ask you a question no it seems with uh oh that was not very nice eric okay here we go all right listen uh, Chris brought up Dylan uh, Riola, right? And apparently, I think Steve Wilfong uh, reported this, uh, but we're going to trust your knowledge at this point. Uh, it seemed that he was pointing to USC. Uh, a lot of people had, quote, given their blessing that he was going to go to SC. What has been, the, in your opinion, the, the change that fingers now pointing for Georgia? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly. I'm not in not in constant communication with Rayola, so it would be a guess. The, there, he has, he and his family have a big time connection with all the coaches that are pursuing him, right? So Mike Bobo at Georgia now that there is a there's a big time connection with that family. So it's going to be where he's most comfortable. Georgia has proven they can win, right? With USC, there's can they get over that hump? Can they can they become a legitimate national title contender Georgia's there they they don't have to prove anything at this point in terms of that uh I still you know depending on when he commits if he comes out to USC again I think would be a, a pretty strong statement that that you're still in there and I just I'm I'm gonna let Lincoln Riley run his race with quarterbacks I, I just don't think there's any sense I mean Dylan Rayla committed already USC was already out of the race for him and and got back into it so you know, at this point, until he's until he's done, done, until he's signed, I, I'm always going to think that that Riley's got a chance with any quarterback that he clearly has pinned up there as as his guy. Mark, what's your take? Yeah, there's nothing to be concerned about. April fourth, twenty twenty three, about the twenty twenty four class. Uh, now, what would be nice is if some of the local kids. Um, decided to come on board early. That would generate some uh, enthusiasm. We, we talked about Dylan Rayola. Wherever he decides, you know, that's going to be the jewel of anybody's class. He starts with USC, you know, he signs with USC, commits to USC, I guess I should say. Um, everybody's going to start jumping on board. But if you can get a, a Kingston, Villamusu, Asa, a Jordan Lockhart, you know, I think... Uh, Eric mentioned Marcellus Williams. When you start getting those local kids to start committing early and and stick around, um, that will ignite the 2024 class. And my concern is uh, why USC is having a tough time keeping that poly pipeline working. 
it seems to be really intermittent right now. So that's where my concern is. Yeah, and I agree with uh, with Mark on this one. I think the big, I don't know if it's going to be one recruit. Obviously, uh, Riola would be a glamour national recruit. But I think when I look at recruiting now, I'm really looking at Southern California. Can you keep the great players in Southern California, in Southern California, and specifically going to USC? I think that's a momentum thing that all the kids here, uh, for the most part, because of the camps, they all know each other. They all talk with each other. And uh, as far as concern about the poly uh, connection, uh, Scott did, uh, Scott Schrader, that is, did write something about uh, the problem with uh, Dylan uh, Williams, a linebacker from uh, uh, Long Beach Poly. Was it, quote, I think the, the one word quote in quotations was, he didn't jive with um, the Trojans' defensive coordinator which uh, tells me a little something there about not necessarily the accuracy of the Trojans defensive coordinator and his personality and recruiting skills, but the overall feeling there, uh, that could change, of course. Uh, I'm sure SC is aware of it. And if they didn't, they probably do read wearesc.com like they read all the recruiting sites uh, in that area. So yeah, I think the big thing to me is to watch what happens in Southern California. So with that, let's get to overtime. Uh, panel, it's time for the overtime and time to answer some viewer questions. This one's from Scott from Gilbert, Arizona. My question is, what do you expect to see and what would you like to see in the upcoming spring game? How much do you think Malachi Nelson will play and do the coaches risk letting him throw some deep balls with his repaired non-throwing Shoulder, uh, okay. Jump right in, panel. I'm, you can pick your spot here. I want to see the the lines, the offensive line and defensive line, go against each other. I want to see if that <laughs> looks like uh, the the college football playoffs. What it looked like up there. Um, I think that's kind of a, a key spot. Again, be great to see Zachariah Branch in the open field, and I think people are gonna like what they see from Marshawn Lloyd running the ball. Uh, but, but it's kind of what the, what the trenches look like for me, as far as Malachi Nelson, he's not cleared to do any kind of contact stuff, which they don't let their, you know, no quarterbacks get hit during the spring, but I'd be curious if he can even do stuff where the offensive line and defensive line are going full speed at each other. So, so I don't know. I, I don't actually know if he can go in like during full contact periods at this point and even be in the pocket uh, for, for something like that. I think people will get to see him throw a little bit. Um, but again, that that's kind of a question that I have for the spring game is if he can even participate in stuff like that this fall, if he's, if he's cleared to be in there uh, when guys are going sort of full speed, full contact around him. When he's in there, he's going to be rolling out of the pocket and there will be no one within 15 yards of him. So uh, if you see him throw, that's going to be um, how he's throwing, where there is as little risk as possible to somebody even bumping into him. And what do I want to see? Tackling, good tackling. And, you know, Eric mentioned, let's just see what the defensive line actually looks like uh, in a live period. Let's see, you know, who it, 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 is it really a 50-50 split where 
they're having just as good a spring camp as the offensive line. Right? That's what I need to see. Chris? Nope. I don't have anything to add. That sounds good to me. All right. Uh, I uh, The thing I want to see in the spring game is I just want to see players and what positions they're playing in. Uh, I, I don't think Malachi Nelson will play. I don't. He hasn't uh, participated in contact drills to our knowledge. Uh, why would you risk uh, an injury, uh, even a freak injury, a non-contact injury, uh, you know, for one glorified scrimmage? So, uh, you know, we'll, by the way, again, we're going to preview the spring game uh, next Tuesday, and we'll get into depth by position and talk about our perspectives and what we're looking for. All right, question two from Mick in Stewart's Draft, Virginia. Do you believe the emergence of Rayshon Davis, the acquisition of Mar uh, Mason Cobb, and the likely eventual starter attack at Curtis will force Alex Grinch to find playing time for Eric Gentry on the edge when he returns from injury? Cobb and Curtis are tackling machines, and to me at this stage, it's more important to put ball carriers on their back as soon as possible than it is having Gentry clog passing lanes. I will just say, uh, from my perspective, uh, I think that's the biggest loss I felt for spring ball is that we didn't get to see uh, Eric Gentry perform, uh, not just in, inside, of course, but the ability to perhaps experiment, which spring practice does do, uh, what he would look like on the edge. So that's kind of my perspective on it. What about the rest of you guys? I don't think Eric Gentry is going to be anywhere other than linebacker. I don't think they're going to put him on the edge. Um, look, Eric Gentry was USC's best linebacker last year, and it wasn't close. And I know he's skinny. I know he needs to add weight. I get all that. And he probably, he probably is adding weight. I imagine he's going to be 10, 15, hopefully even 20 pounds bigger uh, this coming fall than he was last fall. But he was USC's best linebacker, and linebacker is still a position where USC doesn't have a lot of proven talent. The question says the, the emergence of Rajon Davis. What, did I miss something? What emergence is that? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful like everybody else that Rajon Davis is going to play this year and play really well. But the emergence was that he played some of the Cotton Bowl after not playing all year, and, and he did okay. He didn't exactly dominate that Tulane offense. I mean, Tulane ran up and down the field at will against everybody on that defense. So... I don't know what that means. Mason Cobb's going to be a starter and probably a good one. Tacky Curtis is eventually going to be a starter and a good one, but he's a true freshman who played a lot of safety in high school. I, Eric Gentry is going to play linebacker and he's a good one. Let's stop trying to move him somewhere else where I'm, where I'm not sure if he, I'm not sure he's going to fit when we absolutely need him at the position he was playing last year. If you list all those guys, Rajon Davis, Mason Cobb, Tacky Curtis, Shane Lee, Eric Gentry. I'm probably going to tell you that Eric Gentry is the best linebacker right now and at the start of fall camp, probably six games in and maybe at the end of the year. I mean, that I, I think he's I think he's the, the best guy. Um, he makes plays. He's not a guy that got ran over by running backs all year. I mean, he he can tackle, he makes plays when he's in there. I think that those other guys allow you to not have to play him 90, 95% of the snaps and, and kind of go through that thing. You can move guys in and out and move guys, uh, you know, on, on the bench and, and play them in situational stuff. But yeah, the idea, 
I think there, I think there's a lot of sort of Madden esque ideas where, oh, this guy has like 98 speed, so we can play him at any of these six different positions and do that. I mean, the the rush end is a, is a defensive end. Eric Gentry is not is not a defensive end. If he lines up there consistently that they're going to roll two offensive linemen at him and and just push him out of the way. He makes plays when he's in the middle of the field. So I I think he's in that mix. But again, the idea that a true freshman or Rajon Davis is going to absolutely leap him uh, at this point, I think, I think is guessing quite a bit. He's proven now in two years at this level that he can play and, and play really well. So yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about the depth there, uh, but just having you know you you mentioned four guys. If you want to rely the whole season, I think it's four: da- Davis, Cobb, Curtis, and and Lee. If you think you can get through the entire season with only those four guys uh, at linebacker, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can do that. So I, I think you you need to play Gentry there and and expect a lot out of him. All right, uh, let's move on to question number three. Uh, this is from Artie in Brookfield, Wisconsin. I've been to the Rose Bowl when the Badgers have come to Pasadena, but where does the panel suggest I consider staying when the game is played at the Coliseum? Downtown, the beach, Orange County. Uh, my recommendation for you is don't stay in downtown. Uh, I would find a place at the beach and make sure you have a car that has a good GPS system uh, otherwise, you're going to get massively confused driving the freeways to try to get where you're going. I would just not come, and I would tell all the other Wisconsin fans not to come. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, or or go ahead and come out here, stay in Laguna Beach, and then just watch the game on television. That's fine. So nice. Place you can stay. stay in San Diego and watch all the other Pac-12 games uh, that are that are being broadcast down there. Southern California is really big. You can find a lot of hotels the further south you go and the further inland you go. So, uh, so Indio or, or El Centro is what you're and suggesting? You can, and they've got gambling facilities out there. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised you didn't mention Coachella, but then again. Uh... Yeah, find, find something in Santa Monica, start walking to the game Thursday afternoon, and uh, call, call it a weekend. Stay in Lake Elsinore. Maybe you can watch the Tigers play on Friday night before the USC game on Saturday. That's uh, that that that's what you really need if you want the full culture of Southern California. In all in all seriousness, I have found that there is a the, stay in Buena Park. A lot of hotels and freeway access is very easy. You won't get lost. All right. I also I think Greg knocked downtown a little bit early. Stay at the, the at the JW there downtown. You're right by LA Live. You can do the not Staples Center crypto arena. Uh, that I, you know, it's different. LA downtown LA is, is different than it was ten years ago. If you put it in that perspective, I would say, having done it, go to the Grammy uh, Grammy Awards Hall of Fame. It's a museum. It's wonderful. It's, about uh, three uh, three stories there, and uh, it, it's it's really enjoyable if you're a rock and roll fan. I, I will tell you that. 
Stay, no, seriously, stay in Laguna Beach. Stay in Laguna Beach. You're going to have a drive up to the Coliseum uh, on the Saturday, but so what? And if if I'm from Wisconsin, I think that's probably the place I need to hang out. Right. Sell your tickets to a USC fan. Stay out there at the beach. Or try to find it on. Uh, it, it'll be televised, right? At that point, you can actually watch a USC game on TV. Uh, pretty much wherever you are, you don't have, you don't have to hunt for Pac-12 Network, so should be good. Will there even be a Pac-12 Network when this happens? <laughs> Pac-10 Network uh, or nine? I mean, how else are people going to watch that San Diego State uh, SMU game, Greg? Do they still want San Diego State? I mean, they was that a letdown? Did they did they fail their test to be San Diego State? No. May have outplayed uh, the the Pac-12. They they may look at Greg uh, higher than that. Greg, that's for you. Uh, no, I think that uh, the Pac-12 will will admit San Diego State. It's got an, ident- an identity that isn't going to go away, which is basketball. I think the football will be better. I don't think it's going to be an incursion on SC or UCLA recruiting-wise. But I think they have an identity sport. It's like Long Beach State during the Jerry Tarkanian era uh, basketball. Uh, they they found their niche, and I think it's it's I, – I don't know how the Pac-12 can blow this if they're going to – expand that's just my opinion uh let's get to some uh final couple of questions here uh this is from jim in azusa california and this is uh, in no way to try to embarrass any of us but the way usc academic entrance requirements are today do you think you would have gotten into usc out of high school mike first i will be the first to say no i would have not gotten into sc under the current uh situation I mean, the way academics are right now, I don't know if I would have gotten into you anything. <laughs> it is tough. I think I would have. I think. I don't know. We're it's talking not. academically, not not athletic scholarships. Well, I'm, strong I'm pretty sure there was never a time when I was at risk of taking an athletic scholarship from someone else at USC. <laughs> I, I, strong no box. Okay. All right, so we're none of us were going to get into USC under the current. I said I would, Greg. What happened? Are you on the <laughs> Are you on the admissions committee? You just cut me out. What What is this all about? You know, I didn't like your personal statement. <laughs> That's it, probably true. It, it, did, it didn't rise the level of an entrance. Okay, uh, but thank you. Like they say, thank you. Uh, we know you'll be successful wherever you go. And look, it was an honor just to be nominated. Not only that, look at the success you had when you went to, was it in Missouri? Is that where that? It was in Missouri. Don't act like you don't know. Come on. Well, I'm trying to get you involved here. You know. Yeah. Uh, all right. Here's the uh, final question. And this will be a, an interesting d- way to, to put it. I know how I'm going to put it. Uh, this is from JCWUSC Palm Desert. Uh, read recently that Deuce Robinson was the number one rated tight end H. And Walker Lyons was the number one tight end Y. What is the difference between the two designations in the offensive scheme? And are the associated skills, skill sets, what are they with each? Um, I will give my definition of it, and you're certainly welcome to dispute it. Typically, the H-back tight end often excels more in the blocking game. The Y receiver is the letter name assigned to the receiving tight end in today's game. That's how I, I defined it. Uh, you're welcome to change your opinion on how that definition is. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, the H back is the H back is is usually off the line of scrimmage, um, uh, sort of a hybrid tight end fullback position. Um, and whereas the Y is is almost always lined up on the line of scrimmage, and and as a result has a bigger I wouldn't say a bigger role in the running game. It's just that the the Y is the Y is sort of a hybrid between a receiver and a tackle, and the H is sort of a hybrid between uh, between a fullback and uh, and a slot receiver. Um, is how I describe it. But you can. But you know, a lot of times the same guy will will be able to do both. And they're both. I think they're both more wide receivers than tight ends anyway. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to end this with this question. This is off the cuff, unplanned. Who is the best H back that SC's had in your lifetime? Don't fall for it. Greg already has an answer. He's only going to tell you why you're wrong. No, I'm not going to. Don't. I. Wow. You're very vindictive today. Uh. All right. We'll I just want to protect my other panelists. Okay. 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 Here we yeah. go. Kenny. Greg's, Greg's thinking up questions and he's thinking up answers. He doesn't give us any notice. He just springs it on us. Well, your your brilliance is so apparent. That well, I, I think so, but that doesn't mean you can't tell me what you're going to ask me. <laughs> well, you know, I was going to go to Eric because of his obstinance, but because you turned out to uh, supersede that, uh, who was it, Arledge? Who's the best H back in your lifetime for USC? I don't know. I have no idea who the best agent oh, is. Oh, come on. I don't know. No, but you talked, know the answer. The, You're playing the best. with What? You're playing with this. See, I know Colkin knows the answer to this, right, Mark? I don't know. Does Rhett Ellison count? It, it, no, Ellison would count. Absolutely. He certainly played a lot. That's, yeah. that's the only name that popped into my head. So was he the best? I don't know. The only one I can think of at the spur of the moment, Greg. Well, okay, now we're going to emphasize Greg. Uh, okay, Eric, uh, do you have an H-back that you would like to nominate as the best in your lifetime? Did I mean, you-, I, you know, I talked about, like, positions, right? So I, if I feel like I want to call Stanley Havili an H-back because he caught passes and ran routes and did that kind of stuff, I can do that. I know he's not an H-back. He's not I an know H-back. he's a fullback, like, technically in the, in the annals of USC history, but – I'm sure he lined up over behind a, a offensive tackle at some point in his career. Uh, he'd be used more like that, I think, right now if he played right now. He's a guy that, just because I, I brought him up, he's a guy I think was like a decade too early. I mean, I, I know he did a ton of good stuff, but he strikes me as a guy that would have potentially a long NFL career had he come along now and and been able to to be used uh, the way some of these guys are right now. Um, but no, I, I tried to warn everybody, Greg, go ahead. Just, just tell us, tell us what the answer is. T- take the stage. Probably a guy from the 1940s, right? No, yeah. no, no. See, now you always have to go to the lowbrow. What this time no, that OJ Simpson lined up at the H-back position? <laughs> no, the H-back position, Vic Rockshani. Vic Rockshani from Edison High School. Who will ever forget Rock Shawnee in motion all the time under John Robinson. He defined the position. And I have not seen anybody who did it any better than Vic Rock Shawnee did. So the I'm not gonna say it's the correct answer, it's my answer. Sure you are. Yeah. Okay, well just and you're biased because it's an Edison guy. Well, 
Come on. What do you what do you start? What do you want me to start saying? E D I S O N. No one beats Edison. Come on now. I don't. I don't want you to say that. I know because your dad. Went, I know because your dad went to Fountain Valley High School and used to have animosity towards the lightning bolts. Admit it. My whole family. No, my whole family went to Fountain Valley High School. My my dad graduated just before Edison opened. So he. I, I don't know that. I don't know that he has that sort of animosity. But, but I think the show's falling apart now, Greg. I mean, at this point. Most most everybody that, that bothered to watch us in the first place has turned it off. We should just shut this down. And you know that? And I think that's a great point. Probably your best of the uh, of the broadcast. So that will do it for Tuesday's edition of Inside the Trojan Huddle. Reminder, next, uh, next week we're going to preview the spring game. So until next Tuesday, a big thank you to our great panelists, Mark Culkin, Eric McKinney, and Chris Arledge. And a special thank you to you for uh, watching or listening to Inside the Trojan Huddle. Have a great week. This is your moderator, Greg Katz, saying, fight on, everybody.